making moonshine and booze a home distiller's guide to legally creating spirited libations, or maybe that's just against the law. Marshall Fowley from Lerman Beverage Law stops by to pour some knowledge on us. I'm Lawrence Clitty, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. It's fantastic to be here with you. We've got a fun show today, but before we get to all that, we need to thank our sponsor for their generous support, Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnoda.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, let's meet our guest, Marshall Fowley. Welcome to the show. Hey, Lawrence. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, this show uh, came to its origins. I was, uh, and I'm sure you get this all the time in the line of work that you do, but I was up late. I couldn't sleep. And I happened upon Moonshiners on the Discovery Channel. (laughs) Never seen the show before. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to watch this. And so I turn it on and like, you know, one episode turns into three. Now I'm really not getting a good night's sleep, but really interesting show. And for for people that are less familiar with this, this is about uh, moonshining, obviously, but it's, you know, back country, illegal stills, creating illegal alcohol and the sales and the life and all the characters that are involved in that. So really great show if anybody wants to check it out. But uh, I was so curious, Marshall, that did some uh, home research on that while I was watching. I got on my Amazon app and I was like, can you buy a hobby still? And sure enough, you can. I'm like, well, that's interesting. So I dig in a little more and I find out it's illegal, right? You can't make alcohol in these stills that you can buy legally online. And that's when I was hooked. That's going to be a show. So anyway, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know this is your line of work and uh, you're the senior attorney at Lerman uh, Beverage Law, but uh, what kind of uh, work do you do uh, in regards to alcohol, tobacco sales? Sure. So, so we actually don't focus on tobacco very much. We're strictly an alcohol beverage uh, related law firm. The majority of our clients are what we call uh, suppliers. So they're the folks who are brewing your beer, uh, distilling your whiskey, and uh, venting your wine. Or they're the importers who are bringing the products uh, into the United States from Scotland or France or Japan, wherever. And uh, we also work with brand owners. So, so folks who have ideas for products and they're looking to kind of get into the industry and maybe team up with a ongoing producer to produce the product for them. And um, we kind of help them with their licensing and moving forward with what they need to do for those products. In my research, I discovered that it seems like basically from the very beginning of our country's history that law, law enforcement, and alcohol have had a very close relationship, even dating back to George Washington. And of course, everybody remembers uh, Prohibition and, and uh, you know all these different agencies that, uh, you know, and Al Capone uh, busting people for selling illegal liquor across the country. But you know, walk us through that just a little bit to provide some perspective and context behind this, uh, this regulatory environment that we're in today. You know, we've always had this. So let's start from the very beginning with George Washington. Absolutely. And and it's kind of, I found it amusing that your sponsor today is an accounting company because when it comes to the history of alcohol in the United States and how law enforcement gets involved, the number one reason is taxes. Everything boils down just about everything boils down to taxes when it comes to alcohol beverages in the U.S. And 
Um, in fact, the second bill passed by the first, the very first sitting United States Congress was a tax on imported alcohol. And, and this led to what most people will remember from their history books as the Whiskey Rebellion. At the outset of the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, a general by the name of George Washington was tasked with raising an army to quell this rebellion. And so he went to Pennsylvania, and it was around 1794, and believe it or not, took 13,000 troops with him. So, so very sizable force to quell this rebellion on a tax on imported alcohol. And then you go from there, and so obviously there's uh, regulatory bodies, but then we get into the, the 18th Amendment prohibition, which goes away. So kind of walk us through there and how that sort of set the tone for modern-day enforcement. Sure. So everybody is aware of the 18th Amendment, which created prohibition across the United States, and kind of the black market history of alcohol during that time period. And you mentioned Al Capone and the kind of gangster arena of that time. And even looking at someone like Al Capone, you know, he wasn't arrested for the violence he committed. He wasn't arrested for the acts of the murders, the prostitution, the, this thing. He was arrested for tax evasion. There's that word the, again, a, taxes. Again, it's coming down to taxes. But the 21st Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, of course, repealed the 18th Amendment. And in that 21st Amendment, it essentially gave the states the authority to regulate alcohol coming into the states and being sold within the states. So what we have is your overarching federal set of regulations, and those regulations stem from the Internal Revenue Code, believe it or not, and a act called the Federal Alcohol Administration Act. And, and, and this act stems from the Internal Revenue Code and details things such as um, how you go about licensing facilities, uh, how you go about making sure labels are correct. I don't know, most people may not realize that the majority of alcohol beverages in the U.S., uh, the labels are approved by the federal government. So, oh, wow. so it's a very minutiae, very detailed regulatory scheme that alcohol beverages have. And then you get to the states and each state has its own set of regulations. So you may have regulations that apply one way in Virginia, where I'm located, and Maryland that are completely different. And for brands who want to expand across multiple states or have a nationwide footprint, then they have to deal with these possibly conflicting regulations across 50 states, District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, Guam, <laughs> what have you. So it's incredibly regulated, very heavily regulated. And that's when they call you. So when they want to do a nationwide uh, distribution or production of, of any type of alcohol, that's when they, they engage with a firm like yours to make sure that they're Hopefully. In total... <laughs> There you go. There you go. So I want to uh, transition the conversation over to these hobby stills. You know, I know there's a sure. big, complicated regulatory body behind, you know, nationwide sales with these big breweries and big uh, distilleries and things like that. But, you know, back to kind of the hobby part of it, what I found was interesting was that, as I understand it, you know, if you're making beer and wine, you know, just for personal consumption, not for sale, you know, you just have to be of age in the state that you do that in. But 
it's different when it comes to distilled alcohol. So explain how the law treats those two different activities. And that's exactly right. The federal law allows hobbyists, if you will, your home brewers, your home winemakers to produce products. And you hit the nail on the head with the for sale. That's really the linchpin of when licensing, taxes, regulations come into play for beer and wine. If you're just making it for your own personal use, you're giving away to family at Christmas, friends to Christmas, you're going to be fine. The government treats distilled spirits much differently. For one, almost all of your equipment has to be disclosed to the federal government. So when you create a distillery, you provide the federal government with a list of of all your equipment. Each still that you have, so the piece of equipment that's actually making the alcohol, has to be registered with the federal government. You know, if somebody has a fully licensed distillery and say they're making vodka and they decide, hey, let's buy an extra still because we want to run two types of alcohol at once. You know, we want to double our production. Well, if they don't get that second still registered with TTB, and that's the government body, it's the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, if they don't register that still, then they're guilty of moonshining. They're, they're guilty of making alcohol without a proper license. Now, as I understand that they can't do this at home either, right? I mean, you can't do it in the confines of your own house, correct? Exactly right. Federal regulations prohibit the act of distilling in a residential building. So even if you wanted to have a small distillery at home, the fact that it's at home would prohibit you from doing that. Now, if you had a outbuilding that was not part of your house, not not attached to the house, it was a you know a couple of yards away or something, and you went through the licensing process, that may work. It, there's a discretionary aspect with the regulators, but typically, if it's on or near your house, they're going to say you can't do it. What if uh, you live in an apartment building, you decide to do it out in your apartment's uh, parking lot, asking for a friend? Well, so it's actually an interesting question because not only do they prohibit the residential area, there are requirements for security. So you have to disclose to the federal regulators and state regulators when you get to that level what the security of your facility is like. Uh, There are specific laws on are your locks compliant? It can get really in the weeds. They want to know, are you hiring a guard? Do you have uh, 24-hour monitoring services? You know, what are you doing as a distiller to keep the general public from entering your distillery, from potentially taking products? And what's interesting is in the federal realm, this is referred to as the safety of the revenue. So again, we're talking about taxes, revenue for the United States. Um, It's not, you know, are you protecting your whiskey? It's are you protecting the revenue? Now, this applies whether you're selling it or not. So even if you're just a hobby distiller at home, these same rules apply? Yeah, but I think it's, it's important to note, hobby distilling at home is 100% illegal. (laughs) That's 
<laughs> that that's going to get the ATF agents and TTB agents knocking on your door and possibly taking you to jail. Well, let's talk about, I mean, there's some reasons for that. It isn't just an arbitrary uh, government decision, minus the taxes part, of course, but there's right. a difference in these processes. So like if you're doing beer and wine and you're making that, it's a totally different process for creating the alcohol in those beverages as compared to distilling alcohol, which presents a whole different vector for danger. So can you explain how those two processes are different and, and uh, you know, walk us through the tie-ins, why the government got involved trying to make the process more safe? Sure. So essentially, when you're making distilled spirits, you are heating up the alcohol that was created during the process of making beer or wine. So if you take a whiskey, for example, the mash of your whiskey is essentially a grain-based beer. It's an alcoholic, lumpy type of liquid. And then you heat that to evaporate the alcohol. Alcohol evaporates at a lower temperature than water. And then that alcohol goes through the process to where it is condensed back into a liquid. And that beginning liquid that you're starting from, it could be a wine. It could be a fruit wine. So you get fruit brandies, eau de vies, things like this, where you've essentially made a wine or a beer from a specific fruit, you distill it and you get your fruit brandy. That aerosolization of alcohol is really the dangerous step because it's incredibly inflammatory. And if you have a spark somewhere, if you have a leak somewhere, it could cause property damage, damage to individuals. So it really does heighten the dangers involved with the production of distilled spirits versus beer and wine. And that's, I think that's probably the main reason from a safety standpoint that distilled spirits are treated different than beer and wine. But I think you also have a societal difference where distilled spirits, rightly or wrongly, may be considered worse for you than beer or wine. They may be considered more dangerous from an addiction standpoint or from a impairment standpoint. So, you know, the amount of alcohol in an 80 proof vodka, a shot of that is equal to a couple of beers, a couple of glasses of wine. So you're getting the same amount of alcohol with less liquid. So I think there's some argument to be said there that from a societal perspective, well, in the process too, and if, if uh, Moonshiners has taught me anything, it's that you always throw away the front end of your process there. The, they call it the heads, but it's got a lot of the, the toxins from that evaporation process that seep into it. So you want to make sure that's removed. And so is that also kind of part of the reason why they want, hey, you register this still, we want to kind of know that uh, you know what you're doing with this? Um, you know, interestingly... They don't quite, the federal government, state governments don't quite ask whether or not the individuals obtaining uh, the licenses to distill have done it before, have been taught classes, have, have any experience. They want to make sure that the facility itself is up to standard, the equipment's the, the right equipment. And then they kind of leave it to the individuals running the business to figure it out how they want to do it, whether or not they want to 
take the heads or tails off of the distillate at one point versus another. And when it comes to distilled spirits, that's one of the really artistic points to the process is when do you really take those cuts? And, and taking those cuts, as you said, are, are going to affect the final taste, whether it's aged or not aged. Whenever you take what's called the heart of the distillate, that's going to have an effect on the taste. And it's a it's a learning curve. Um, I know, you know, I have friends who run distilleries and I can tell you that, you know, some of their early products they probably weren't happy with. And then as the years go on, they've gotten better at their production. They've learned a lot and their products are fantastic, you know, a year or two in, maybe even a couple of months in. So it's not so much the how you can do it. I know I've said it before, but it does come down to these taxes and states and federal government want to get their cut. Absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, my, my next question for you, uh, Marshall, is uh, a what, when, and who question. And I want to set it up just a little bit. And so kind of getting back to what we, we discussed earlier with, you know, being able to buy a hobby still on Amazon, it's totally legal to buy a still. No, no we hope you're enjoying our conversation and about making booze with Marshall Fowley. We'll pick up where we left off in the next episode when I ask about the exact point when it becomes illegal to distill alcohol. Is it when you put your still together? Is it when you buy your ingredients? Or is it when said ingredients somehow find their way into the pot? We'll find out next time. Thank you for listening. Have a great day, everybody. Uh, 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 uh,